Alright. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Alright, I'm I'm not a big sports guy, but uh both my wife and my in laws are from Colorado, so I've already received instructions on who I'm rooting for today. <laughs> kind of a no brainer, so <clears throat> Yeah, my friend Jay was alluding to how he'd love to be in those meetings where uh we pick topics out for who gets to do what up here and uh you know, I'd just like to say that I would like to be in those meetings. <laughs> it really doesn't work that way. Uh, it's kind of a running joke out here now that whenever Mike throws me the ball, it's a curveball. <laughs> and inevitably when the topics come up and it has anything to do with like mental illness or insanity or some kind of craziness, you know, oh, Mark, why don't you do this one? And so, and so, you know, he, it's bad enough he gives me Romans 13, 12, and 13, and I'm not, you know, a numbers guy, but the first thing I notice is there's two number 13s in it, and that's not good, but fortunately, I was taught years ago, it's bad luck to be superstitious. <laughs> so... I didn't let the numbers thing throw me, but then I read it and I thought, here we go, orgies and drunkenness. <laughs> but <clears throat> I do know a little bit about the drunkenness part. Orgies, not so much. <laughs> I was never that popular. <laughs> so somehow my invitations got lost in the mail there, but... Uh, but at least uh, in a general way, <clears throat> I kind of relate to some of this. And and as we read through this passage, it, I can't help but for some reason, you know, the wording in here, it, Romans says, uh, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. You know, even hitting that word debauchery, uh, for some reason what that triggered in my mind was a little story of the day the Swan Lake Pavilion burned down. I was raised on a farm down in Turner County, and we lived a few miles up the gravel road from the Swan Lake Pavilion. Great place if you were growing up back in the 70s. It, it was an old roller skating rink that got converted into a beer bar out there. And there was uh, live rock bands every Wednesday night all summer long. And there was just excitement and action. There was fights in the parking lot and kids running around in muscle cars. It was like dazed and confused, you know, that movie. And uh, So obviously my parents hated that place. And it became the lightning rod, the focal point for everything that my brother and I did wrong. So, yeah, I'm going to drag my brother into this. Group. And uh, so we were coming home from Sioux Falls one day and in Dad's pickup, and we saw the smoke in the distance. And we, it was close enough where he was thinking, you know, maybe it was his farm on fire. Maybe the barn was burning down. So... You know, we drove faster to get up there, and when we realized the fire was actually at Swan Lake. So we drove out to the lake and parked on this hill opposite of the pavilion. We sat there 
uh, with the lake between us, and we just sat and watched this place go up in flames. And I was, uh, Dad was laughing, and I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> and seeing that word debauchery in here reminded me of that because uh, now, my, you'd have to know my dad to really appreciate the story. He was an old eighth-grade educated Danish farmer, pretty gruff. And, you know, to him back in the 70s, all the local kids in Hurley, they were, they were all on the dope. Everybody was on the dope. So uh, we're sitting there, and I heard him utter some words I'd never heard him say before or since. And what he said, he blurts out, it's about darn time somebody burned down that den of iniquity. <laughs> den of iniquity and I remember thinking why Stanley I did not realize you were a King James man <laughs> but so that was kind of my thoughts along these lines you know about some of the the things that they're talking about as we continue in this series the law of God and talking about the deeds of darkness and it would it would be so easy to stand up and give a, a fire and brimstone sermon on not doing the not-dos and listing all of the horrible things that those people do and we're not supposed to do. and Those types of talks write themselves. They're really easy to give. The problem is they don't ever seem to affect any kind of a change. And that's why the more that I hear religions and preachers that get up and give these talks like that, I always wonder how much bang for the buck that they're really expecting to get out of that. Because we all know that if you have a problem, any kind of a problem that you want to fix or solve, it requires two very simple things. We need to have the, the right diagnosis and the right treatment. I don't know how many of us took cars to a mechanic and spent thousands or hundreds of dollars and they never it didn't run any better when we got it back. Well, they either diagnosed it wrong or they fixed it wrong. The same with health problems that I'm <coughs> really relating to today. <coughs> Excuse me. You can go to a doctor and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars and you get done with the treatment and don't feel any better because they either diagnosed the wrong disease or treated it you know, with the wrong medicine. So it's exactly the same when it comes to treating the world's problems through church. And one of the one of the things that really shocked me is when I heard the statement, religion never saved anybody. Now that's a bold statement. Religion never saved anybody. And I thought, and I heard that in a Christian church. I thought, well, I could understand that about false religions never saving anybody. But how can you include Christianity in that? And in order to understand that, we have to start by defining the term religion. And the problem with religion is religion, as it's rightly defined, is a man-made system where man tries to bridge the gap between himself in a fallen state and reconnect with God. There was a gap created at the fall of man. And how do you get back to God? How do you repair that chasm? How do you get from where you are to where you need to be? 
So religion is the sum total of man's attempts to get back to God. Christianity, on the other hand, is not a religion. It's a relationship. And it's the story not of us going to God, but God coming to us and bridging that gap for us because we cannot get to him. I found it extremely interesting years ago when it was revealed to me that religion was born in the Garden of Eden. Religion always seems to revolve around diagnosing things according to two things, goodness and badness. And all law seems to divide things according to how good or bad they are. That's based on an assumption that things can be inherently good or inherently bad. That's a very flawed premise. There is nothing in this world that is inherently good or inherently bad, except, of course, for God himself. But other than that, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It only matters whose hands it is in. Now, isn't it interesting that the one tree in the garden that we were commanded not to eat from was named what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm, very interesting. And you see, all relig religion, if you wanted to make a picture of it, it's a set of scales. The scales of good and bad, good and evil. And what we do is we tend to divide or separate things into those two camps because we tend to think in black and white terms. Oh, do that. Why? Because that's good. Oh, don't do that. Why? Well, that's bad. And do the good things and don't do the bad things and hang out with the good people and stay away from the bad people. And then you will be saved and God will accept you and welcome you and love you. The only problem with that is when we divide things according to some inherent goodness or badness, it, it doesn't seem to work that way, does it? Because we try to think of, okay, what is good? And that was part of my frustration during those years that I went from one church and one religion to the other and listened to their messages. And the more I heard, the more confused I got. <clears throat> and I would go to one church and they'd say, well, uh, you can't dance. Dancing's bad. Okay. And I go to the next church. Oh, you can dance, but you can't eat meat on Friday. <laughs> okay. So what, what would I rather do? <laughs> you know, well, I like cheeseburgers and I can't dance. You know, I'm one of those, you know, I'm a typical one of those, uh, you know, the way that I'm wired. You know, I can't move my top half and bottom half at the same time. So, you know, one of, and they're like not connected. So giving up, I do think dancing is bad for that reason because I can't do it. So, you know, that's a no brainer giving that up. But, but you go to these different religions and they had different rules. I went to another church. It was bad to play instruments in church. Everything they did was a cappella. And I thought, well, that's pretty bizarre. But it was just wild, the rules that were written around separating things according to goodness and badness. And you see, this is what blew my mind when I started to understand what true Christianity was all about and what Christ was teaching because religion, 
was represented in Christ's time by the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that were all immersed in Mosaic law and dividing what all of these nitpicking little things. And what was interesting is Christ didn't come along and try to make himself gooder than those guys. He, he didn't try to improve that set of scales. He did exactly the opposite. He slid them aside and set up an entirely different set of scales that weren't labeled good and bad, but were rather labeled true and false, truth and deception. And what he was all about was dividing things, not according to some inherent goodness or badness, but rather how true something is or how false it was. There was one time somebody accused Christ of being good, and he went off on him. He didn't even want to be associated with that. They called him good teacher, and he goes, why dost thou call me good? You know, he was going, look, that was the religious people that wanted that good label associated with them. That wasn't his game. He said, no, I don't want you to follow me because I'm good. I want you to follow me because I'm telling you the truth. In the old King James, almost a hundred times before Christ said anything, he would preface it with the term, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. And then he would tell him about God and tell him about himself and tell him about heaven. What that translates into in modern English is, I tell you the truth. And later, not only did he tell people the truth, but he actually said, I am the truth, the way and the life. Jesus was truth incarnate. And not only was he the truth and told the truth, but he came to expose the lies and expose the liars. And that's why he also talked a lot about the devil and I put a passage in there, you know, about how what he revealed. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, by dividing things according to truth and deception, that was a whole different mindset than just trying to separate things according to some goodness or badness. And that's why it also tells us in the Bible that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. See, it doesn't matter what it is. In the devil's hands, he will forge everything into a weapon and beat you with it. There's nothing so good that it can't be used for bad. There's nothing so bad that God can't turn it into a blessing in disguise. Even people that fell into addiction, the beauty of their 12th step is you not only recover, but you then go out and help others to recover from the same thing. And through that process, what turns, what started as one of your biggest curses is converted into your biggest blessing, your biggest asset. Because in God's hands, our past becomes something that can actually be used to help other people and not hurt them. And you see, that's the miracle of dividing things according to truth and deception, and not just some arbitrary standard of goodness or badness. 
And today we're looking at another angle of that where we're dividing things, not just according to truth and deception, but according to darkness and light. Now, a few, a uh, couple of months ago, we gave a, another teaching about light and darkness, and we were talking about how we tend to think in black and white terms, and we tend to think in opposites. And if you ask people, what's the opposite of up, down, in, out, left, right, east, west? And so if you ask, what's the opposite of light, you'd say dark, correct? But you see, light has no opposite. Darkness is not the absence of light. It's merely the absence of light. There is Darkness doesn't have any equal power when it comes to the light. We used the example back then that uh, if it's light in your house at night and you open and it's dark outside, when you open the door, you don't let the dark in. You let the light out. And you don't open the door and have see this wall of darkness where the dark outside just stops at your doorway. See, light has power over darkness. And in the same way, or a similar way, you have a different contrast when it comes to separating truth and deception. Because there, it's also curious because lies are not really the opposite of the truth, but rather a twisting of the truth. Now, this gets a little heady, but hopefully I can make sense of this, where you realize that you cannot have a lie unless you have a pre-existent truth, can you? In order to properly lie, to be accused of lying, there have to be two pre-existent elements. Number one, I can only lie to you if I first know the truth. If I don't know the truth, how can I spin the truth? I might accidentally tell you the truth and not mean to. <laughs> Oops, that's not what I meant to say. But so you have to know the truth before you can you are in a position to lie. The second fact of lying is not only do I have to know the truth, but I have to have the intent to deceive you. Now, if those two elements aren't present, I can tell you something that isn't true, and I'm not guilty of lying. I'm just wrong. If there's a sprinkler system outside and I hear the water hitting the side of the building and bouncing off the roof, I might assume that it's raining out because I heard the water hitting the building. And I might tell Harry, hey, you know, make sure you take your umbrella. It's raining. And I'm not lying. I'm wrong. It's not raining out, but I don't know that. And I meant to be helpful by telling him that. So he walks outside with his umbrella, and people laugh at him because the sun's out. But I'm right behind him with my umbrella, too, because I didn't know I was wrong. Now, on the other hand, if I want to deceive somebody, and I know it's not raining, and I tell them it is, then it's a lie. And you see, this is why the devil is held to a higher standard than we are when it comes to being culpable for being the father of lies is because he knows the truth. He was in heaven with Christ and knew him personally before he voluntarily chose to disobey. And that's why he has a much higher uh, blame 
than we do. Because at least we can say, even in the Garden of Eden, we had a deceiver. He did not. So therefore, in order to lie, there has to be those elements in place. And and so when Christ said, I am the truth, the way, and the life, he also said when it came to light versus darkness, I am the light of the world. So Christ not only came to address deception and help us to know the truth, because the other fact about deception is you can only lie to somebody who knows who does not know the truth. When the Bible says the truth will set us free, set us free from what exactly? The truth will set us free from both the lies and the liar. You cannot lie to somebody who knows the truth. If I want to sell you a car with 100,000 miles on it, and you know me and you know that car, and after I trade it off at the car lot, you go look at it and it's got 50,000 miles on it, it doesn't matter what lie that salesman tells you about why it has low mileage. You will never believe that because you know the truth, and that truth sets you free. And that's why in churches like this one, what we do is we try to focus not on addressing every possible lie out there. We think it's much more efficient to just teach people the truth. There's one truth. There can be an infinite number of lies, and that's why... What we have tried to do through these years is simply state the truth of the Bible, to state the truth of what this book says, and and that is what insulates us from our deception. You know, where so many churches would even take a passage like this one today and gravitate towards being making us all sin conscious, we want to make people sun conscious. We would rather have people focus on the sun than on the sin. Because that's how I think we get the most efficient bang for your buck. And and that's why sometimes it throws people off when we don't go there and they don't hear the fire and brimstone things. But, But again, that just doesn't bear a lot of fruit. So today we're looking at this whole thing of the deeds of darkness. And again, going back to that example of diagnosing a problem and then treating it correctly. Uh, when it comes to why we do the things we do, that's really a central question, isn't it? That's why I fell in love with the book of Romans, uh, because when Paul was writing in here, he asked that rhetorical question, why do I do what I do? The first time I read that passage, it stopped me cold, and I set that book down and thought, now that is an excellent question. Why do I do what I do? And he goes on to explain why is it that despite the fact that I know perfectly well the difference between right and wrong, why do I do the wrong thing? He says, I know what's right and I try to do it and fail. I know what's wrong and I do it anyway. He goes, what's wrong with me? And he concluded that his problem was sin within, what he called his lying lower nature through Adam. And through that deception, what he ended up doing, because he lacked the power to do differently than that, he'd fall back and he said he was sold into slavery with sin as his owner. What a 
beautiful graphic illustration of how we all find ourselves in bondage. When my head said jump, all I could say is how high. When my head said go to the pavilion, all I could think is let me get my checkbook. (laughs) When my head said lie, I'd open my mouth to tell the truth and here come the lie. Powerless. Helpless, but not hopeless. And that's where the Bible comes in. And what gives us hope in here is that there is a solution to this dilemma that we find ourselves in. So our real problem then, according to this, isn't badness, but blindness. And there's two reasons why somebody can't see. One is because their eyes don't work. That's called blind. But even if your eyes work perfectly, there's times when you can't see because it's dark out. There's no light. So rather our blindness is caused by a lack of sight or a lack of light, the net result is the same thing, isn't it? We can't see. And when the Bible goes on and talks about this, it says this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness because of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And it goes on to say, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what that's telling us is that when it comes to this thing of darkness and light, there's two different levels to that. Part of it is external. It's a true thing that criminals like vampires like the dark. I did. There's, uh, I was taught one time if you want to protect your home from burglars, one of the ways you can do that is set up a lot of excellent outdoor lighting. because you're less likely to have somebody break into your house if you have a well-lit property. It's the same phenomena that you see in cities. Uh, a lot of cities, when they went bankrupt, one of the things they did was turn the street lights out and then crime increased because it was easier for people to commit street crimes and vandalism because even if there were security cameras, it was too dark to film them. So darkness and deeds of darkness kind of go together, don't they? And in a similar way, light has kind of the opposite effect where light is repelling to somebody who doesn't want anybody to see what they're doing. But conversely, the other flip side of that is light is attractive to people that are doing right things. I chuckle at myself every Monday. I have a guy that I meet with for an hour on Mondays, and uh, we always meet at this coffee shop. And uh, I've noticed that I never tip, put a dollar in the coffee shop tip jar when the person's back is turned. I always wait until they turn around so they see me do it. Now, part of that is I don't want them to think I'm a deadbeat, you know, too cheap to give them a buck. But part of it is if I'm doing something right, naturally I kind of want them to see that. And when it comes to light, 
I think that it becomes attractive to the proportion that we want people to see what we're doing. The Bible says, let our light shine before men. And that makes perfect sense if I'm doing the right thing. But you see, the deeper problem, like it says in that second passage that I read, is the real darkness that we face isn't out here, it's in here. And that's the harder darkness to address when it comes to hiding, because it's not that we hide from people when we do things that we don't want people to know about, but really we're hiding from ourselves. There are dark spots inside of us that we don't want to look at. It's not just that I don't want you to know what I'm doing. I don't want me to know what I'm doing. I don't want to get honest with myself. So we develop these dark places in our heads and dark places in our hearts. There's an old adage that says we're only as sick as the secrets we keep. And the flip side to that is that we should try to aspire to live our lives lives like an open book. To the proportion that we can be honest and open and transparent, I think that's the degree that we truly can find freedom in this world. But how do you do that exactly? See, and that's the challenge. And that's where going back to a little of this uh, 12-step recovery stuff, there's a great line in the textbook that they use in AA where it talks about our problem is that we're blocked off from the sunlight of the Spirit. I love that image that that paints because for years I experienced these, what uh, my spiritual advisor used to refer to as these dark nights of the soul. I think probably we've all had those times where it just feels like God isn't there. Where you can pray, but all you're doing is talking to your knuckles. And those prayers are bouncing off your bedroom ceiling and landing back in your lap. And you wish that you could see God or feel Him or experience that light, but it's like, it's dark and you just, you, you cannot make a connection. And what I concluded was, I can't connect with God and I can't feel Him or see Him or touch Him or, <coughs> Or be aware of him because he just wasn't there. You know, lights weren't on because nobody was home. But when I landed on that line that says the problem isn't that God's not there, we're blocked off. And I saw this vision like, you know, when we have an eclipse, we all know today what happens, right? There's the sun and there's the earth and the moon comes in and blocks off the sunlight. So it gets dark in the middle of the daytime. We're blocked off from the sunlight. Now, in ancient times, there were tribesmen and ancient, uh, uh, you know, people that would flip out every time there was an eclipse because they didn't understand what was happening. And that's when they started slaughtering the virgins and throwing them in volcanoes and doing all kinds of goofy stuff. And they did that for years and years. You know why? Because it worked. <laughs> they go, wow, threw a couple of chicks into the into the volcano and sun came back. I guess the sun god must like that. Write that down. <laughs> Carve that into a rock because that's what we're going to do next time if that ever happens again. You know. And, you know, we laugh. That's funny. But, you know, I was absolutely as ignorant as those old tribesmen were. 
Because I had things that were blocking me off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And I'm flipping out just like some guy living in the jungle going, oh, now what do I do? Trying a bunch of stuff. And using that, going back to what that textbook says, I think there's a lot of wisdom in there because what it says is there's basically three different things that can come in and block me off from God. And they are pride, calamity, and worship of other things. And that really boils it out in a nutshell. The first thing is pride. I can't find God if I think I'm him. And I also I also can't find God if if I think I don't need him. Either way, my pride keeps me from seeking God and connecting with him. The second thing that blocks me off, it's, it uses the term calamity. And there's two kinds of calamity. There's the stuff going on out here and the stuff going on in here. But it's hard to find God when I've got all of these immediate deals I've got to handle first. I've got, oh, you know, I'd like to connect with God, but first I have to deal with these money problems and these health problems and deal with these relationship deals. And then once I get all of these ducks in a row, then I'll deal with my spiritual life. But what we learn to be true is until we get right with God, we'll never straighten out mentally or even physically because we have, we need His help to do these very things. Our priorities get screwed up. So I can't fall victim to the distractions out there or in here. The third thing that blocks me off is worship of other things. I'll never find God if I think that all I really need to be okay is a million dollars or a certain degree or a certain job or the love of a good woman or two or, you know, what, whatever it is. But those are the things in this world I will pursue as my solution instead of seeking God because we tend to worship the things of this world. When we learn to follow the instructions in the Bible in the New Testament, what we find is that calamity is replaced with serenity. Worship of other things is replaced with worship of God, and pride is replaced with humility. And then we have what we really wanted all along, which is peace. But again, what's the practical application for that? How do you deal with that darkness on the inside? And you see, this is where, isn't it just a true thing that we never think about what we think about? I mean, all day long we have this running patter in our head, that lower nature stuff. Our head constantly telling us stuff. But how often do we really stop, slow down enough to think about what it's saying, or more importantly, where those voices are coming from. How often do we stop and ask ourselves, is that even true, what I'm hearing, what I'm believing? What is the source of my information? And the more that we can inventory this stuff, you see, and that's why another aspect of 12-step recovery is they do this, this fearless and searching moral inventory where we start to look at our resentments and our fears and our sex conduct 
But the goal of that is to prepare us to admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Now notice what I did not, what that does not say is to admit our wrong. I've been to churches that featured confession. And that, what, what they did was they just went and confessed everything they ever thought, did, or said that they deemed to be wrong. They confessed their actions, their stuff out here. But what this step says is we need to confess the exact nature of our wrongs, not the wrongs themselves. So I thought, well, what's the difference? Well, you see, the difference is between, like, this is a object lesson right here with me up here coughing all day. <clears throat> you know, I've been sick all week, which really is a downer when you know you got to do something like this. I start losing my voice a couple of days ago. I'm going, oh, great. So, but to have a disease, if you go to the doctor to talk about your disease, what you're going to talk about is your symptoms. Oh, what's my problem? Well, I'm coughing, I'm sneezing, I got fever or headache or whatever it is. But now if I go to the doctor and talk about the exact nature of this disease, we're not talking about the symptoms anymore. What we're talking about are the germs that cause the symptoms. If you kill the germs, the symptoms go away. But that's not the American way, is it? (laughs) This is America. (laughs) What do we do in America? Well, what we do is we go down to the drugstore and buy a shotgun cold remedy, and we take that, and we deal with the symptom. So now, all of a sudden, I take this so I don't have a runny nose, and I take that so I'm not coughing anymore, and I take this so I don't have a fever, and I take that other thing for this other symptom. And even if I feel good, I'm still sick. And I might still be contagious, but I feel better. And you see... That is the downside of addressing things on the outside, is even if I'm acting right, I'm only acting. (laughs) I don't need to just act right, I need to become right. And that takes transformation from the inside out, not confirmation from the outside in. I don't need to conform, I need to transform. And that's why only the greatest of physicians, Christ himself, can heal us from the inside out. I don't just need to deal with the external symptom. And when we get into our heart condition to deal with what's really wrong with us, what we end up looking at is the germs that cause these deeds of darkness out here, these bad behaviors. Because why do we do the things we do? Well, I think it's because we really are hardwired to seek two things, pleasure and peace. I do things because they feel good. I do things because they shut my loud head off and they make me go, ah. And that could be as as simple as being hungry, so I eat, and then I'm not hungry anymore. But we do a lot of things, sometimes without even thinking about it, because it gives us pleasure or gives us peace. Now Christ not only said he was the truth and he was the light, but he said, I am the prince of peace. And that's what we always have wanted all along, isn't it? Everything we do is a means to an end. The end is, if I had that, then I could have what I really want. Ah. 
For an alcoholic, that ah comes from another drink. For a drug addict, it comes from another fix. From a gambling addict, it comes from one more pull of that lever. For, uh, But for any of us, it comes from doing what we have been told is going to make us feel better. And that's where I think the real message of this today, when we're dealing with darkness and the deeds that come from darkness, if there was one simple thing I'd throw out there, I'd put down in that boxed area down there half a paragraph that comes from that other book I was talking about, but I think that really sums up the Christian principles that we're talking about. And I love this because all it, it's so simple but so profound. It just tells us about four simple problems that are the root of so many of our bad decisions. And then it tells us four simple solutions, four by four. You know, if you get stuck in the mud, what do you do? You put it in four-wheel drive, four by four. You know, four problems, four solutions. Or my favorite is, you know, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry. You know, he got into trouble. What did he pull out? 44. You know, that's how he dealt with his problems. You know, taken into account, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. You can blow your head clean off. You gotta ask yourself a question. Do you feel lucky? Do you punk? You know, that's four by four. Yeah. See, it's easy to do that with a scratchy voice. That was horrible. Uh, Maybe next week we'll do Arnold. (laughs) Yeah, take my hand. (laughs) Come with me if you want to live. (laughs) People ask me all my life, what's your problem? They'd say things like, boy, what's your problem? I don't know, beats me. (laughs) But today I can tell you, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. In a nutshell. My problem is I'm selfish. And that doesn't just mean I want more than I deserve. What it really means is I'm self-centered. Everything is about me. And if it ain't about me, it ought to be about me. (laughs) But it always ends up, everything is personal. I take everything personal because it's always about me. You know, so that selfishness and self-centeredness. The other part of selfishness is playing God. See, I don't just know what's good for me. I know what's good for everybody. And that's playing God is a huge symptom of my selfishness and self-centeredness. The second problem I've had all my life is dishonesty. But I don't mean that we lie to other people. I mean I have a head that lies to me, and I don't know it's lying. Now, there's another word for that. It's called insanity. But it's deception. See, all... Insanity revolves around deception, believing a lie to be true and then believing the truth to be a lie. So that's why I constantly need to think about how I think and ask, what is the source of my information and is that true? I've got to, you know, because you think, well, how can you lie to yourself? Isn't that like hiding your own Easter eggs? (laughs) You know, I don't know where I put them. (laughs) But... But you see, we are. Because of our lower nature, we do lie to ourselves, and then we believe it. That is crazy. So we need to ask ourselves, is that true? Just because I believe it doesn't make it true. The third thing is, it says that we need to watch for resentment. Resentment is when we replay 
hurtful events in order to refeel the pain. And that's another symptom of spiritual sickness, is I harbor resentment, old anger that never goes away. The fourth thing is I have a lot of fear, which is very self-explanatory. What might happen? What could go wrong? What would you do if? And it just bombards you. So when one of those four things crop up, it says when these crop up, number one, we ask God at once to remove them. Number two, we discuss them with someone immediately. These things lose their power when we talk intelligently about, I'm afraid of this, and it doesn't seem as big of a deal, or I'm mad at this person, but, you know, it doesn't, I can work through that, or this is what my head's telling me. Man, that does sound kind of crazy. <laughs> and by talking about these things intelligently, these things lose their power. They're so much bigger in our heads than they are out here. So we discuss them with someone immediately. And then it says that we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. If we do this right, we're not even harming people anymore because we're not making decisions based on fear and anger and selfishness and deception. And the final thing is then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Get out of here. Focus on other people and not on ourselves. You know, just like you can't drive your car and always looking in the rearview mirror. The main thing is look forward at other people. So just some thoughts we had. Uh, com communion Sunday today. So uh, we're going to do communion. Uh, you know, my thoughts on that, uh, we're going to play some music, go back, grab the elements. We're not going to tell you when to do them or how to do them. Just, you know, take them as the Spirit leads. Uh, the thought I had on communion today was very simple. It's you know, I get invited to some things once in a while, no orgies, but, you know, yet. But, you know, I get some invitations. My favorite invitations always say, come as you are. You know, it's always a little bit stressful. Okay, what am I supposed to bring? What can I prepare? What do I got to take? How do I have to dress? Do I have to clean up? Do I have to look nice? Do I have to do anything there? It's so nice sometimes to get an invitation that reads, come as you are. You don't have to bring anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to dress a certain way. And when we're invited to the Lord's Supper, the invitation always says, come as you are. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to bring anything. We come empty-handed. We just show up, come as we are. And I hope we can keep that in mind as we go through communion today, is that, you know, this invitation for communion, is for all of us, and just he just wants us there. So with that, why don't we take communion? Before we have our closing song, there was a couple of quick announcements I was asked to throw out today, too, business-related. Uh, first of all, for those that are still interested in the bylaws that we rewrote, uh, those are published and they're approved and they're online now. If you're interested, you can find those on our website. Uh, secondly, we're redoing how we're doing the financial reporting in our bulletin because we realized that was creating some confusion. The way we accounted for things in there every week, we showed the budgeted expenses versus uh, how much we took in during the week and that was kind of some lopsided figures. If you're like me, I'm reading those going, gosh, you know, we're bleeding money. <laughs> but the problem with that, it's kind of like if we had things that are fully funded, like the 
uh, debt retirement, thanks to all of you, and some things like that. So we kind of pulled those things out because that money's already sitting there. So we tried to create this dashboard, of some more accurate gauges we can look at to get a, maybe a hopefully a little more accurate picture of where we're at. It's kind of like if you put money in your escrow account as part of your mortgage every month, that mo you don't budget that. It's already sitting aside. So we're just trying to make a better snapshot of where we're at from week to week so you'll notice those changes. With that, let's have our closing song. You guys would stand with us. Better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So our prayer this week, Lord, light us up. Help us to let your light shine from the inside out and to be a light to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.